So today we're kind of answering that question. How does love relate to suffering? It's a diff- different message. We're going we're gonna to wade into the deep waters a little bit as we head to the cross. And we're not just heading to the cross today. We will read Christ crucified in the book of Matthew as we work our way through, uh, through this great book. Suffering is clearly a part. They call it Passion Week because passion means suffering, and it's a week of suffering for Jesus, and it leads and it climaxes in the suffering on the cross where he finally dies, physically, completely, literally dies, which is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We remember his body broken, his blood shed for us, and, and why he did that and what are the results of that on both ends of suffering are love. He did it first for his love for the Father because he obeyed and he loves his father, so he obeys his father. And then second, uh, love for us, compassionate empathy for us. And then on the other side, he propels us as the body of Christ to love those who are suffering. So all of this is, is sometimes hard to, to put together because our default is to shun suffering. It's to resist suffering. It's to find any way to avoid suffering, even to the extremes where we will medicate. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to not suffer. Okay, that's a good thing. You don't want to suffer. You shouldn't be seeking it out. But, but suffering can be redemptive. Suffering can be used for great good. And I, I want us to um, wrestle with this, grapple this, with this today as we think about the fact that Christ had to suffer and die for us so that we wouldn't have to suffer and die for our sins, first and foremost. But not only for that, but so that in our suffering, because we live in a world where there's still sin and suffering, in our suffering, we might see redemption. We might see that love has a purpose in letting us suffer and even helping us endure and pass through that suffering, not only for our benefit, but for the benefit of those around us. And so we're going to look at this passage. It's a lot of scripture because a lot's happening. And I'm not going to drill down on deeply on very much of it, but on this idea, I will return And I will finish with a word from uh, someone that uh, shared this really well this week. So I'm going to start in verse, chapter 27, verse 27. And Matthew is writing, again, it's Friday, we're still on Friday. It's good Friday, even though it wasn't great for Jesus. It's good for us. And so starting in verse 27, we're going to also be reminded that Jesus was just flogged, which means whipped and beaten to a pulp. And, and the way the Romans would have done it is they would use what's called cat of nine tails, which is a, you, a picture whip, okay? Think Indiana Jones, he has a whip. It's just one leather cord. Now multiply that times nine cords, not one cord. And on those cords, those leather straps that are really long, there are bits of bone and glass and rocks tied in to that along the way on all nine of those so that when you whip around the abdomen of the person who's on their knees, hands shackled on and then leaning on a rock, as it wraps around the body, those bite into the body so that then you can then jerk with all your Roman centurion strength and rip out chunks of body over and over at least 39 times by law. They weren't supposed to go more than 39 because it was believed 40 would kill somebody. And that's the treatment he got before the cross. Because Pilate's trying to convince the crowd, let's not crucify this guy. He's convinced he's innocent. But because God has a plan, and this was part of that plan, he ends up on the cross. Even Pilate wanting to prevent it, empower 
and empowered to prevent it didn't prevent it. And so it's with that now, this is what happens right after that. Verse 27, then the governor's soldiers, that's Pilate, he's the governor, that's Roman soldiers. So then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium. The praetorium is a section of um, military housing on the corner of the temple, attached to the temple there so that Rome could keep the peace. They gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They estimate around 600. So Jesus has drawn quite the crowd. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and then they twisted together a crown of thorns. And we're not talking the little rose bushes like we have around here. We're talking one-inch-plus thorns, sharp, needle-sharp. And they, they take the vine, and then they press it onto his head. Then put a staff in his right hand, and then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him in his face, all over him. Took the staff, struck him on the head multiple times. Again, remember the thorns. Again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his clothes on him, and then they led him away. I want you to see that that, um, Matthew here wants us to zero in on something. And the reason I know that is because of the way he structured this paragraph. If you look back and you look at verse 27, it talks about what's also happening in verse 31, right? The governor's soldiers, they take him to the praetorium, they gather the whole company there. And then at the end, it's they led him away to crucify him. 28 and 30 also mirror one another. They stripped him of his scarlet robe. And then 30, they spit on him and took the cloak, struck him, and then again headed out. And then they, they took the robe and put, put his own uh, clothes back on him. And so what's happening is Matthew's taking these and he's kind of creating a funnel to make it very clear. If you can't, you know, don't miss this. What's at the center of that is what really matters here. Well, what's at the center? Verse 29b. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. All right? In, um, in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, Paul is writing about the great humiliation of, of, of Jesus, how he humbled himself, how he chose to humble himself and go to the cross. And then God says, after he, or Paul writes, after he humbles himself, he is then going to be exalted by his Father. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's actually a future past. Okay? Um, I think I'm saying that right. What that means is he's writing about something that happens in the future looking back. So even what he's looking back at is still happening after. Both are in the future. But he's saying that in the end, when Jesus comes back, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, willingly or not, Believing or not, Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay? This is what we mean when we say Jesus has all authority so that all nations might pledge all allegiance to him. This is the theme through the book of Matthew. Jesus has all authority. Why? Because he's the creator. Because he's the king. Right? So Matthew is pointing that out in the midst of the ironic mocking that is occurring by the very creatures Jesus created. The very people he created are mocking him, calling him the king of the Jews, when in fact he's the king of kings. This is just another way to show this is all happening on purpose. Verse 32. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene, that would be a northern Africa and the Libyan, where Libya is roughly, named Simon, this guy's name. Now, remember, we're in the middle of a week-long festival called the Festival of Unleavened Bread, 
It's one of the three major festivals that the Jews would have celebrated, and the, the population of Jerusalem would have swelled massively. So he's one of the many pilgrims making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for this festival. So he's just walking by, not minding his own business, and he gets sucked in by the Roman troops. They, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. So what would have happened after Jesus was mutilated and um, mocked? Now they're going to have him do what they would have most of the people that would be, if not all the others, that are going to be crucified on Golgotha. They would carry the top beam of the cross, at least the top beam. Probably that alone is 100 pounds. And they would go ahead and, and I, I don't know if they spiked him or if they tied it. it I, there's debate over how that exactly went down. The point is they had to carry that part. The Roman soldiers weren't going to do it. I guess the posts are already up there. And Jesus is so weak, he can't make the journey. It's a long, long walk to get him up, and it's all uphill. And so they, they pull, basically say, hey, you. And, they, and then he comes and he, what, me, what? And they force him to carry Jesus' cross. Of course, that's another whole sermon in itself, isn't it? Right? Matthew 16, 24. Jesus calls us to carry our cross. If anyone come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And the cross is not just a symbol of suffering, but it's certainly a symbol of suffering. Ultimately, a symbol of death, too. Okay? But it's the most cruel. Right? We sometimes will compare. Sometimes I've, I've said this in the past. You know, we wear necklaces with crosses on them, jewelry. And, and I go, it's kind of like, I've heard people say, it's like wearing a necklace with an electric chair hanging on it, if you think about it. Now, I would say that's true. They're both instruments of execution. The difference is that the electric chair is much more compassionate than the cross. The injection is much more compassionate. Most, many historians say the most cruel form of dying execution is Roman cross, crucifixion. So when we're wearing that jewelry, let's make sure we're thinking about what we're wearing, by the way. Whether you're a guy or a gal, I've seen everyone. Lot, there's a lot of crosses out there. It's not a talisman. Anyway, I didn't mean to get off on all that. My point is this. Suffering is part of following Jesus. Why? Again, because of this relationship with love. Okay? When you love much, you will suffer much. And if suffering is something you're like, I don't do suffering, I avoid it at all costs, then you're avoiding Jesus. And I want you to think that through. Because I don't think a lot of Christ followers mean to say that or want to say that. But I want you to think that through as we look at what Jesus is exemplifying by how he's choosing to live and, yes, how he's choosing to die. And it's all motivated by love. Golgotha is the, is the name of the cliff or the, the hillside where the crosses stayed, where the crosses, it, it's not the only place they crucified. They would crucify up and down roads. There was a time when there was like a thousand crosses down one of those roads that lived near where Jesus lived and grew up in Galilee. And if you had a, if you had a bunch of people revolt, which was oftentimes happened in the Roman Empire, that's how they communicated to the rest of the Roman Empire. This is what happens to traitors you get crucified. So Jesus had seen people suffer and die on the cross before. He knew what was coming. But this was right outside the city gates of Jerusalem. It's up high and prominent. And if you looked at the side of the hill, there was like a hole for two eyes, two holes and, and a nose and maybe even a mouth. And it looked like the skull on the side of a hill. 
And so they called it Golgotha because not only did it look like the skull, but that's where people were executed. And we know three are executed on that day, as we'll see here. So they carry and they, they come to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Verse 34. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. And I believe it's because it was, a, in a sense, essentially a drug designed to numb the pain. And he is choosing not to do that. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. This is fulfilling prophecy in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a, a powerful psalm that points to the crucifixion a thousand years before it happened and centuries before crucifixion had even been invented. And yet David's writing describing it. How do you explain that unless God is giving him the words? Prophecy fulfilled. There's more here. And sitting down, they kept watch over him. That is the soldiers. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Understatement. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who were going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God, quote unquote. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Now, we know from Luke's account that one of those rebels ends up repenting and believing. Because Jesus tells him, today you'll be with me in paradise, when he asks for him to remember him. So we know God's mercy goes to the deathbed, okay? I know we don't like that. That doesn't seem fair. I've been following Jesus my whole life, as if that's a terrible thing. And he, he gets to wait till he's on his deathbed. All that fun, really? You don't realize the scars that created, do you? And him and others? Yeah, deathbed conversions, I'm all about it. Bring it. As long as they're legit, right? And that's not for me to decide, is it? Nor you. It also makes me think, who was supposed to be on that middle cross if not Jesus? Remember last week? Jesus Barabbas? Jesus Barabbas? Some manuscripts have Jesus in front of Barabbas and some don't. There's debate. I think it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a Matthew saying, contrasting. Because Jesus Barabbas was a revolutionary a murderer, a robber. I think these were two of his other guys. I think this was his cross. We know he sp that Pilate spared Barabbas' life because that was the policy of that festival that they would release a, a, one of the prisoners. We know that. He says that. But we don't realize how, how unlikely he would have been released if it had been anyone other than Jesus. That's how desperate the Jews were to get Jesus crucified. They're not even going to keep him and let Barabbas be crucified. So Jesus is on Barabbas' cross. If he'll die for him, he'll die for anybody. And he did. Anybody who'll trust him. Unfortunately, the majority won't. What about you?
from noon until three in the afternoon. Okay, it's already been, he's already been on the cross since 9 a.m. It's a long six hours. Halfway through, it goes dark. How many of y'all remember the uh, solar eclipse? Well, it was a year or two ago, right? We had that, and you had to get the little glasses, and everybody went out, and it got as dark as night in the middle of the day. Street lights came on. It was crazy. Happens here. Now you can say, oh, what a coincidence. Yeah, okay, it might have been. But what timing? What timing? It's like God is about to say in cosmic terms, I'm paying attention to what's happening here. I sent my son because I'm trying to get your attention too. that your sin is so bad, this is what it takes to make it right. I have to send my one and only son, the only person to ever walk the earth and not sin, and let him die in your place so that I can forgive you if you believe that that's how I can truly stay just and merciful at the same time. From noon until 3 in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now we start to see how lonely Jesus really is, how abandoned he feels. Anyone feel abandoned today? How it feels to be denied by those who you spent the last three years doing life with up close and personal. Judas has already abandoned him. Peter has denied him. The, 12, the rest of the disciples scattered. The only people I think that haven't, it looks like maybe his mom and maybe the Apostle John. Rome has abandoned, even using their own laws. They failed him. The religious leaders have abandoned him. Even the crowd has abandoned him. Even the thieves who are getting the same treatment, they've all abandoned him. And here he is now saying the unthinkable. My God, my Father, you are abandoning me? Why have you forsaken me? He, he at least feels it if it's not actually happening. And I don't understand Trinitarian theology very well at all. But I do think that there's a reason that we have God the Father and God the Son here looking at each other or not. As the Father turns his back in the only time in history, past or future, Eternity in both directions, the only time they will not be in perfect union. I don't know exactly how to say that. I may even be saying it incorrectly because it's too big for me. I don't comprehend except that he is suffering beyond the incredible physical suffering here. Why would Jesus do that? Because of love. Love for his Father, who he trusts enough to go to the cross and believing that his father will finish what he started and resurrect him, but go through that suffering, the pain, and the doubts, and love for us to know that by doing this, we have a shot at not having to go through suffering forever, suffering for eternity separated from God. This is what it's about. Verse 47, when some of those standing heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. He's not, but that's what they think. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge, and he filled it with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. 
And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And before I get to the next part, I want to tell you a story. So I was about eight or nine years old. I was at YMCA soccer camp. It was like one of those three-sport day camps. Every day you go and you play one of three sports. And this was back in the day when YMCAC stood for Christian. It actually, actually, Christ was actually mentioned. And one of the coaches sat us down during a break and told this story. And you can actually find this as a mini-movie, probably on YouTube. It's about 15 minutes. It's called More. And the story goes like this. In just a minute, it goes like this. There's a dad, and he, he, his one job is the drawbridge. And the drawbridge is a railroad drawbridge over a river. So he, he drops the bridge when the train comes, and then he raises his back up, and the boats go back and forth and back and forth. And then when the train comes, he lowers the bridge, train goes across, and, then he, and it's, his job is to make sure the train gets across, that the tracks are in place. And his son every day would come over and hang out with him all day after school, as he was there in the control room, and his son would play in the woods, and he'd crawl around the river, and he was up, and he was just doing what little boys do at that age. So the day comes, the bridge is up, and and he's, he hears his son start to cry out, and he, and, and he he steps out of the control room, and he looks down, and in the midst of the giant gears under the bridge, the son is stuck. He's got his legs stuck in the gears. And these are massive. And um, so he starts to run down the hill until he hears the train whistle. A chill goes through his body as he realizes he has a flash of a moment he has to make a decision. Who's he going to save? Because he can't do both. And he abandons his son, and he goes back to the control room so the bridge will be down in time. Now, I know that son didn't choose to be there, and I know he didn't send his son there, and I know the analogy breaks down in several places, but you get the idea. Why would God abandon his son? Why would God the father suffer watching his son suffer? Why would the son suffer? Why all this suffering in our world? Because God created a world where evil could happen so that we could be free to choose to love and be loved. And he knew the only way to demonstrate that deep love was to be willing to suffer himself. And so he did it as son of God, and he did it as father God. So when you and I suffer, we're just getting a taste of that, but he knows what that feels like. Add grief to this, right? Suffering is grieving is suffering. It's a form of suffering, right? You lose a loved one. You lose a parent. You lose a sibling. You lose a child. Suffering. God feels and knows that kind of suffering. You're not alone. You'll feel abandoned, but you are not. In Christ, he is there, right there with you, empathizing, interceding with you. Now watch what happens when Jesus dies. As he breathes his last, what's going to happen is that Matthew's going to describe God sending some more Visual object lessons or visuals for us to realize something significant happened, much more significant than just a good man died. Verse 50, and when Jesus cried out again, he said in a loud voice, in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Verse 51, at that moment, 
the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. What? In the temple, three stories up, is the top of this, I'll call it more like a heavy drape. Really, really thick. Really, really hard to tear. Three stories tall, three stories wide, so 30 by 30. And it's torn in the midst of and as a result of Jesus' death. Okay? Now, I don't know if it's the, the earthquake. I, I don't know how this happens. I don't know if it just happens. But what is the significance of that veil being torn? Why would Matthew speak of that right after this happens? What's so important? Well, remember what that represented. So you had the temple compound, and then you came into the temple proper, and then you'd go in, and there was different courts, and every, every time you went to another court, it excluded some people. And then finally you get to the two inner courts that were divided by this curtain. And on one side it was called the, mo- the holy place, the holy of holies. And there was some apparatus there like candlesticks and bread and, and, and incense, and then there's this curtain, and then on the other side of the curtain, okay, think back to your Raiders of the Lost Ark, there's the Ark of the Covenant, okay, that sat there, and nobody could go back there except one day a year, a day of atonement, and the only person that could do that without dying was the high priest, and he had to jump through a lot of religious hoops, basically approaching God on his terms, that's another sermon for another time, and they would tie a rope around his waist and belt on his robes so that if he died by going back there because he didn't do something quite right, they would know he wasn't alive and they'd drag him out because he was going into the presence. That was considered the presence of God, the mercy seat of God. Now, God is way bigger than any temple, but this was God using the temple as an object lesson of what would come. Okay? And the t- whether you go back to the tabernacle where the tabernacle was in the midst of the camp and Israel camped all the way around, or now we have the temple, the presence of God in the midst of the city of Jerusalem. One day... The temple would leave that building and the temple would move into the hearts of his people. Collectively, Christians, true Christians, are the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is what Jesus meant when he said, tear this temple down and in three days I will rebuild it. What did he mean? Well, he wasn't talking bricks and mortar. He's talking the temple, the presence of God will no longer be limited to some bricks and mortar building. It will be in the hearts of his people and they'll act and behave like it. At least that's what they're supposed to do. Oh, and by the way, it was torn from the top to the bottom. Nobody's doing that except God. God is personally removing the barrier so that the only intermediary we need now is Jesus. He is our high priest. We don't have to go through any human to pray, to ask for repentance or or confession or any. You just go straight to God because Jesus is there interceding on your behalf, even now, even now. These bodies, these tombs breaking open, what's this about? This is just a, a glimpse of the future. God is showing, I'm defeated death. And you're going to see that on the third day because Jesus is going to rise from the grave And he's going to do way better than even this in that new resurrected body. But this is like a foretaste of that. Verse 54, when the centurion, that's a soldier over a hundred, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake 
and all that had happened, they were terrified, I imagine so, and exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph. I think that's Jesus' mom. I think those are half-brothers. And the mother of Zebedee's sons, that's James and John. Where are the disciples? Right? Here's some disciples. Courageous women, faithful women, lives on the line to be there, women. Okay? Guys, you want to see courage? Check out verse 55 and 6. 57. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea called, named Joseph who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. This was secret because he was part of the Sanhedrin who were the ones who actually convicted Jesus and sent him to Pilate to be executed. He wasn't a part of that. He wasn't in favor of that. This is his way of saying, it's time I came out. I'm going public. I'm not going to be a closet Christian, as if you could. Who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. We know from the other parallel passages in the other Gospels that Pilate was surprised Jesus was already dead, and the, the Roman soldier confirmed, yes, he's dead. And if you go back and look at those passages, you'll see that they jabbed Jesus' body with a spear to make sure, and water mixed with blood, it came out to show and prove he was dead. Jesus did not pass out. Jesus did not swoon and wake up in a cold tomb. That's all crazy talk. He died. And all kinds of evidence in the Gospels point to that. So uh, he, uh, verse 59, Joseph took the body and he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. And we don't see it here, but Nicodemus, you remember John 3, Nick at night, all right? Nicodemus joins him as another closet believer and they together placed it in his new tomb, wrapped and pounded, with, you know, covered with spices and and ointments and all the things they would do, place it in his new tomb, okay? So this was Joseph's tomb, and he's giving it to Jesus, but actually he's just lending it. He doesn't know that yet. Gives him that tomb, and then he cut out of the rock. That's the way a lot of the tombs were. They were caves with shelves in the side of the wall. Catacombs is what we sometimes think of. And that he, that he cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb and went away. So in, in Joseph's mind, you know, we're, we're sealing it up, and then we can't do anything tomorrow because it's the Sabbath and nothing happens, no, no work happens on the Sabbath. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. They're still with Jesus. 62. The next day, the one after preparation day, preparation day is Friday, so we're at Saturday. We finally got to Saturday. He's in the tomb. The chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. So um, many Bible scholars think there was a guard of 12, and the way they would have sealed the tomb would have been 
uh, I don't know if they draped a rope across it, but they would use wax over the um, crack sealed with the signet of Pontius Pilate so that if anybody broke that seal, it would be clear. The only person that had the authority to break that seal was Pilate. Well, the angels apparently didn't get that memo because they opened it up to show that Jesus is no longer in there on the next day, on the day which we will read about next week, okay? All right, which we celebrate every Easter, but really every Sunday is Resurrection Day. All right, so let me end with this. Um, Talking about the connection between suffering and love, love and suffering. Those who love much suffer much, okay? This is a, a part of a newsletter I got from Nanette Palm. Some of you were around 2014 when we were um, meeting at the Senior Center, Dorchester County Senior Center, and um, we sent a team. No, actually, it was after that. It was after we were meeting there. So I guess we were at Rawlings, the old Rawlings, and the cafeteria, and we sent a team of three to go to Kazakhstan on a mission trip. It was me, my second daughter, Samantha, and a former youth from my past, last church, Britt. And we went, and we served alongside of their family of seven. They had five kids. And we served their um, children in vacation Bible school. We went up into the mountains, and we, we did ESL with college-aged kids, and we just shared the gospel everywhere we went. It was an amazing trip. Fast forward to earlier this year. Now, when we were there, before we fast forward, when we were there, they had, like I said, five kids. The youngest name was Isaiah, and Isaiah was six. And he was just, he was a treat. He really was. And uh, so fast forward uh, to earlier this year, and Isaiah is in the car with Eli, Elijah, his older, one of his older brothers, and they have a serious car accident, and Isaiah dies, 14 and a half. So they've been processing, grieving, and, you know, Andy, the dad, he's been suffering from severe physical and mental challenges since even when I was there in 2014. And he's at a place where he's dependent on Nanette for a lot of his care. So that's a lot of burden on her. She's writing in this newsletter, just sharing from her heart. And these are some of the things she said. The past four to five months have been the hardest in my life. This came out uh, the 22nd of August, or it was written the 22nd. I guess I got it that day. I want to crawl into bed and never get out again. I don't have that luxury. I found that the simple responsibility that the simple responsibilities are overwhelming. Cooking a meal felt like too much. I'm so thankful for the meals that were brought. I've come to grasp that the one who loves much suffers much. Isaiah is an amazing kid. He gives the best hugs, and he loves his family and others well. The only time I ever saw Isaiah upset is when he was concerned about his dad in the hospital or his dog, Teddy, being attacked by another dog. I love him so much, and I didn't even realize how much until he was gone. I stand at a moment in time that is crucial. I can walk this path of suffering and allow it to make me bitter, or I can allow God to draw me closer to him. The temptation is great. Deep inside, I want to sit and wallow in self-pity and pain. Some days are excruciating. I have so many amazing, beautiful memories of Isaiah. He brought joy, creativity, and enthusiasm for life. He truly completed our family. Yet at this moment, the pain of his loss feels greater than the gratitude of having him in my life for 14 and a half years. 
in reading Lament for a Son by Nicholas Wolterstorff, I've been thinking about the connection of love and suffering. Nicholas writes, quote, If I hadn't loved him, there wouldn't be this agony. This, said Jesus, is the command of the Holy One. You should love your neighbor as yourself. In commanding us to love, God invites us to suffer, unquote. I've never, I've never connected the words loving and suffering. It is truth. God loved me so much that he was willing to suffer. Nicholas states, quote, God is not only the God of the sufferers, but the God who suffers. The pain and fallenness of humanity have entered into his heart. Through the prism of my tears, I have, been, I have seen a suffering God, unquote. God is with me. I know this fact to the very core of my being. Isaiah changed my life, and his loss will be felt in my heart until we are reunited in heaven. So I don't know who that's for today, maybe just for me. But those who love much suffer much. I think of my kids. Now I think of my grandkids, and I think of the love I have for those itty-bitty people <laughs> that I have only known for a short amount of time, and I already think of how devastated I would be if something were to happen to them. You can relate. You all have your own suffering that's going on right now. It may be small and it may be great. In God's eyes, it's all small and it's all great. And he relates to it because he understands love because God is love. So what does he leave this with? Why this today? I think a couple of reasons. One is we need to realize that God loves us. And when we suffer, he suffers. And he did suffer so that we wouldn't have to suffer. But it also tells us that as we see those around us suffering, that God is calling us to do something greater than just suffer, but to suffer with, to come alongside. We said the word passion has, says suffering. Compassion with suffering is to come alongside of someone who is suffering and be present. Not wordy and mouthy like Job's friends, but just silent and present just showing your love by being there. We've said it a lot of times here. Sometimes the best ministry is just showing up. And really, it's hard to minister until you do. And so, maybe it's to challenge us. Maybe it's just to comfort you that you're not alone. That God abandoned his son for a, for a season so he wouldn't ever have to abandon you and me in our suffering. How about that? Is that good news? Now, here's what I want to challenge you with in addition to what's already been out there because this one's, right, this is... Who do you know that God is bringing to mind right now that's suffering, that needs to hear this? And the only way they're going to hear it is through your lips. Because you have that relationship. You could drag me there and I could be there and I could say everything I've said here perfectly and it wouldn't be what they needed to hear because they need to hear it from you. Because they know you. They know you love them. 
So there's not a person in this room that isn't needed and valuable to the work of the kingdom as it relates to love and suffering. And no job's more important than anyone else's. And the only tragedy would be if we didn't act. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the cross where you suffered and died for me, for us, for our sins, so that we wouldn't have to. You died for us so we could live for you, not just exist, not just survive, but thrive. Some of us are stuck. We're stuck, and we don't know how to get out. And we're having that pity party that we're all threatened, we're all tempted to have. Lord, we need, some, we need someone to pull us out. Lord, I, I believe that right now you, you, I need you just to pull them out. I need you to help them see that the, the pathway through suffering is by coming alongside someone else suffering. Motivated by the love of God, for the grace and glory of God, and for that empathy, compassion, basically what Jesus did. That's what you call us to, and that's what will carry us through the suffering we're enduring. Lord, may we not believe the lie that if we'll just get through this suffering, then we'll be able to do great things for the Lord. May we believe that showing up in our weakness is where God's strength is made perfect and where we need to be now, today. So give us courage. Give us the faith to believe that you truly want to work through us through suffering because of love and that how love and suffering work together to redeem people, to buy them back to the kingdom. Give us the courage to step out and do that and believe. And for those who don't know you, Lord, may they take that first step because they are suffering too. But Lord, may they find that you already suffered for them on their behalf so they wouldn't have to suffer eternally for their sins. May they find freedom and forgiveness in Jesus Christ today. In Jesus' name we pray.